Welcome to Channel 12 News at 11. Your home for the nation's top stories, local news, sports, and the weather. And now, our top story. Every stimulation is some degree of pain. Existence is an iron maiden of sensation. And the more we struggle against it, the more it takes of us, our blood seeping out until we are inevitably spent. Struggle or comply, the result is the same. I hate this foul shit of life. And now, in local news. All of human society is just one mass suicide. Our culture a headlong rush into the grave that awaits us. We are not killing the planet, just our ability to exist on it. And now, here's sports. Look at all this pitiful striving. Look at this meaningless abortion of life. We are given the gift of consciousness, of self-awareness, and we use it to waste ourselves on pitiful trifles when we're not busy maiming ourselves or others. A lobotomized culture would at least lack pretense. Now, finally, here's the weather. No longer capable of trusting pleasure and bored with pain, I now seek only oblivion. I feel hate and nothing, and slowly they're beginning to blur. If there is a god, I want to shit in his mouth. This has been Channel 12, News at 11. You're all fucked. And now, here's the Post-Culture Podcast. Notes from Family Clue Night. 6.30pm. We begin. Grandma has already accused the Jews of killing Jesus. Dad chose Miss Scarlet and thinks we didn't notice him rub his game piece on his nipple while whispering Leslie and Warren over and over again. Mom chose Miss Peacock, who she believes to be the most chaste character on the game, though she's clearly questioning her decision more each time Dad drunkenly emphasizes the word cock when referring to her. Uncle Stan chose Colonel Mustard, because Stan is a fascist. I chose Mrs. White, because as it was explained to me before we started, the corpse is not a playable character, and white makes me feel closer to the void. 6.43 p.m. I've failed to slit my wrist with the knife game piece, because it was taken away from me. Dad keeps telling his game piece to show him its tits. 
Aunt Val, as Reverend Green, accused her scotch glass of running low and made her daughter Mimi go get her a refill. Mimi is five. Stan tried to put a real gun down on the game board, but I think the way I licked my lips while looking at it freaked him out a bit, and he put it away. 6.58 p.m. Grandma made Aunt Val trade pieces with her because she's concerned that Plum is a Jewish name, and it's creeping her out. It's pretty clear Mom is trying to get everyone into the study for a prayer circle but she's too nice to say it out loud. I just keep wandering the halls, trying to find a way out. 7.09 p.m. Stan keeps hitting Val's game piece with a lead pipe, but she hasn't noticed because she's busy doodling pictures of herself in a wedding dress, marrying a fairly decent likeness of Tim Curry. Grandma accused Scarlet of being a whore, and Dad started drooling. 7.12 p.m. Stan was so pissed when I proved that I couldn't have done it by having the card for my own piece that his glass eye fell out, and he started shouting out about our ineffective justice system and how lynching would be too good for me. I told him that I'd prefer to be stabbed, to feel my killer's passion in their shaking blade as they sliped into my open flesh and revealed my viscera to the world. Mom told me to hush because it was Dad's turn, so I wrote Stan a poem about it on a spare game card. He's gotten real quiet and won't look me in the eye anymore. 7.30 p.m. There were no cards in the envelope because Mimi stole them as retribution for not letting her play. No one wants to ask what Dad did with his game piece. Aunt Val left lipstick marks on her Tim Curry picture and passed out on the couch. Stan made a little finger pistol gesture and knocked down all the pieces while making kachoo noises. He thought none of us were looking, but I was looking, and he caught my eye and turned red-faced. He said nothing and left the room. We now share this secret together. 2.37 a.m. Everyone is left or is asleep. I sit in the room alone, in the dark, the board still laid out on the table. I roll the dice and move Miss White around the board. There are rooms and secret passageways, but no exit. I've traversed every inch of this game board, and it is a sealed box. A sin has gone unpunished tonight, and I can never leave. Though there was no solution to our game, I know Mrs. White, and by extension, myself, was the guilty party. But there is no punishment awaiting me, no justice forthcoming. So I wander these halls with my guilt, 
waiting for the dice to tell me it's time to die. Come on down to Demijo's Pizza, home of the swirling cheese spiral of pain and our patented wacky bread. We've got the best pizza for the best price of anyone in the Tri-County area, and we'll hunt and kill anyone who says otherwise. Our cheese is fresh and plentiful, and made out of any milk you bring us, no questions asked. Our meats are made from, and served by, an army of trained rodents who sacrificed their own to the dark gods we've convinced them live in our oven. Shut up, eat more wacky bread. Here at Demijo's, we run new specials every day. On Monday, you get a free topping. On Tuesday, you get the next size up at no additional costs. On Wednesday, we're gonna shove wacky bread down your throat, you pathetic sausage pinata-looking motherfucker. Order one of our patented dough women to fulfill your sick desires. We rub our genitals with fresh cheese each morning to give them potency and vitality. Shut up, eat more wacky bread. Come on down to Demijo's for family dining or takeout. We've got those arcade games you remember from when you were a kid, and we haven't felt the touch of a woman in years. And there's a lot of memories that cause us pain. Here at Demijo's, every Friday night is ladies' night in the back of our van. Free toppings if you just hold us and tell us it'll be alright. But if you betray us, we'll feed you to a goddamn dog. Come on down to Demichos, where life is hell, but cheese is extra. believe that there's no such thing as bad art, only incorrect interpretations and rigid perspectives. Looked at from the right angle, the most amateurish productions can have a certain surreal beauty, and the most corporate, mass-market, middle-brow works can express a kind of poetry. To prove this point, I'll be diving into the mythos of one of the most corporate products of all, Jim Davis's Garfield comics a Funny Pages staple designed from the ground up to be light, easily marketed reading. I believe, with a thorough investigation, 
I can find the beauty of this disposable trifle. So for the next week, I'll be reading nothing but Garfield and recording my progress. Wish me luck. Day one. What hell is this? What dire intelligence would envision this sick display and splatter it across newsprint for millions to see? Its popularity makes me physically ill, like discovering that most of humanity eats their own fecal matter and sees nothing wrong with it. This is an art. It's a disease. And the nucleus of it is this foul orange blob that sits in the center of it all. A pure manifestation of worm-like avarice. A beast of sick desire surrounded by the ignorant and the insane. Though reading this vomitorium of horrors makes me want to cave my face in with a rock, I will continue. I will not admit defeat to this disgusting pit of misery. Day two. In the current strip I'm reading, the foul cat is mocking his half-insane owner's pain, sitting there like some kind of quivering amoeba of despair. The idiot dog slobbers and drools a lake of disease around itself, and if there is amusement here, it has died and been buried after choking on its own blood. Day three. The foul cat disgusts me. I hate him. I hate him with my life. In this strip, I, I watch his corpulence spill forth from the frame to devour other comics. The orange goo of his blobulous fat covering their pathetic whimsy. Beetle Bailey's face stretches out the cat's skin, screaming as he's digested alive. Day 4 I've been flipping through some of the numerous collections of this miserable bile in hopes of finding some seed of humor, something that would show me the cause of its success. But through and through, I find rather than humor, a literature that is purely anti-life. In the strip I'm currently reading, some sort of Sunday special, the foul cat and the idiot dog 
stare at each other with wordless looks of blank despair repeated without variation for 5,000 panels. I cannot vomit out the sickness that Garfield has put into me. Day 5! The foul cat's teeth have fallen out as he has achieved his final slug form. The mad owner has carved a jagged spiral into his own face, and the idiot dog has been declared king and sacrificed accordingly, crucified amid word bubbles of dialogue written in blood and speaking insane cosmic prophecies. I've started scratching the backs of my hands as I read, and though I bleed, the itch won't go away. I gave my own cat to a shelter and asked them to euthanize her immediately, along with all the rest of the felines in their charge. I hate life. Day six. There is no logic to this, no chronology. One day all the characters are dead and we see three panels of rotting flesh. The next they're alive and have found new ways to torture one another. Now I read on as the foul cat sinks his claws into the mad owner and makes him dance like a marionette puppet with nerve-ending strings. I feel nothing. Everything in me is dead. Day 7 I no longer believe there is no such thing as bad art because I no longer believe in art. Whatever absurd scrambling we do in this life has no value. We were born screaming on a river of blood, shit, and pain and begin then our ceaseless march to the grave. All we do between is absurdity and any sense of value to it is psychosis. We are born, we devour, we die. The meaninglessness of this struggle is the only lesson life teaches us, and is the only lesson of Garfield.
The box of fluorescent on the highway of rain where they sell what the children need and the small things that she likes. I wait in line. One arm aches and then the other. Ahead, a woman talks. A young woman doesn't listen. Instead, picking up toys Asking with incredulity, What is this? What is this? This moment will not stop. The ache moves to another arm, tediously. I've forgotten I even have the small things she likes and expects, but does not expect. The woman talks, the young register man nods as his hands work without command. I chose him for his speed. The aching ends and the machine takes over. Beautiful automation. I pay anything, everything. I sign my life away for my children's full bellies and her smile. I don't care. I want this over. Back in the rain, the car is patient, still there. I idly wonder what it would be like to flee. How long could I live on milk and peanut butter and pleasurable confectionaries? Not long. They are small. But idle thoughts are nothing to hands that work without command. I am back on the highway of rain. Interstate rain, highway 33. I will feed the children. I will give her the things. She will smile. I won't flee. My hands won't let me. Rejected TED Talks, Volume 1. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. No, thank you.
I think it's clear to everyone here that we live in a world of strained resources. Our population grows, and the only thing we can do is produce more in a race to avoid an epidemic of starvation. As we squeeze more out of the land, though, we put pressure on our ecology, making it more fragile and susceptible to collapse. Climate change and water shortages have exacerbated this problem to a level that practically invites disaster. But our population is a long way from shrinking. And soon we'll need to look for alternative food sources, sources that don't strain our environment to the breaking point, but are still able to feed billions a diet of vital nutrients. And if you'll follow me along down this path, I think you'll see that I have a solution. Ladies and gentlemen, the picture you see here is a gremlin. Gremlins are remarkable creatures. They breed through a process called hydronatus, uh, literally water birth, uh, which means that their sexual reproduction is caused by contact with water. They'll eat almost anything, can survive under the harshest conditions, and, being inherently evil, can be killed with few moral qualms. My research indicates that they are an almost perfect food source. A one-pound block of dehydrated gremlin could supply enough nutrition to feed a family of four for a full day. Due to their prodigious breeding powers, a small herd of gremlins, properly maintained and fed on agricultural waste, could feed a city the size of Burlington, Vermont, indefinitely. They're also a very versatile food source. They can be used to make soup, stocks, dried into jerky, ground into spices. With the right processing, gremlin milk and gremlin flour are both also possible. And, of course, gremlin steaks are a delight. Of course, humanity cannot live on gremlin alone. A more versatile and flexible approach is needed. Uh, this picture you see here is me. Uh, you'll notice that the person standing next to me is also me. Uh, to be more exact, he's my clone. Or one of them. I believe I ate this one uh, in a Cuban pork stew with some uh, lime and cilantro. In any case, what I'm trying to say is we can eat our own clones. For most people, cloning technology is still in its infancy. But after moving past some moral and ethical qualms, my team and I found that we could do it with relative ease. Clones are an excellent meat source. They can be created fully grown from a simple nutritional paste we call womb juice, combined with your own DNA. Obviously, organ harvesting and other medical advantages uh, can also be gained from this technology, but as a source of ethically produced, environmentally friendly protein, 
it's practically revolutionary. Personally, I've had my clones as roasts in stews, uh, turned into a passable carne asada, um, brined and roasted, and also uh, turned into jerky and sausages. You would not believe the reaction I got at my last dinner party when I served myself as a whole roast. It was, uh, it was quite a statement. Listen, people, God is dead. Let's live in the now. Uh, there is, of course, the question of what to feed clones until they are a size appropriate for consumption. But, of course, I know a cheap, reliable food source that could serve that purpose. Yes, you got it. Gremlin meat. It's a perfect, harmonious cycle. And one that could, just maybe, save the world. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Post Culture Podcast. Newsletter from another place. Music in this episode was provided by Rostein. You can follow at soundcloud.com. That's R-H-O-S-T-E-I-N. Slow No Wake. You can follow at bandcamp.com. And also on Twitter at Adam Wrench. That's A-D-A-M-R-E-N-S-C-H. The closing theme was provided by Trachium. You can follow at trachean.com. That's T-R-A-I-K-E-N.com. Also at Twitter at Trachean. Additional music was provided by the American Quartet, Ernest Thompson, Ketetek A. Holstestet, Otto Paikonen, Edna Brown, and James F. Harrison. Remember... Love is all around you. Bolt the doors. <laughs>